So we come today to chapter 20, which is called The Work of the Son of God. We sort of saw some of this last week. I'm not going to be making a lot of references to this particular chapter today. Um, but I am, uh, I'm, so I'm going to just take the liberty to depart a bit from it, but definitely do justice to the, the heart of it and the purpose of this chapter. So we're going to be thinking about the atonement this morning. The atonement. Now this isn't really what, I don't think this is the etymology of the word. It wasn't, it wasn't designed on purpose this way. But it really does at the end of the process come down to this. At one meant. So let me be clear, I don't think that's why the word was built that way. But it's a nice way to remember what the atonement ends up doing. The atonement of Jesus Christ ends up taking two parties that were separated and bringing about an at-one-ment of the two parties. So that's the, that's the topic today, and it's going to lead us into a number of other important subjects that are sort of like satellites that orbit this this great truth but defined atonement means an act of making amends or reparation reparation is kind of a we don't use that word a lot but it has the word repair in it if we have a breakdown of something we need to repair it and we can say there's been a reparation made for that reparation for an offense or injury offering Expiation is another sort of technical theological word. And it's interesting that when you look up expiation, its definition is the act of making atonement. <laughs> so atonement is expiation, expiation. They're very, very similar. The nuance is too, too particular for me to try to uh, make, make a deal out of. It is giving satisfaction for wrongdoing. Now that's what atonement is sort of on a human level. But on the divine level, we're talking about offenses and injuries and wrongs that are wicked, vile, heinous, and rebellious acts of sin against God. So we do, you know, on the earthly level, in terms of relationship time, so we have to make an atonement for what we've done. And we may even say, did that guy atone for what he did? And we just mean, did he make that right? Did he repair that? Did he fix that up? But we're talking now about a breakdown that is on a whole different level of seriousness. It's a breakdown between a holy God and sinful people and a relationship that can never possibly be restored apart from an atonement of some sort. Now last week we saw that 
sin is what came between us and God. Let me just uh, put this illustration up again. Um, we have God and we have man. And pre-fall, and you all understand that language, we fell, we didn't remain in the condition we were created in terms of innocence and holiness and open, unfettered fellowship with God. We fell from that state in our parents. Hey, Chris, how you doing, man? Hey. <laughs> so good. Chris can hardly ever be at church because of his job, and it's so good to see you. How are you? Um, so before the fall, um, there, you know, I tried to sort of illustrate it this way. There was free and open, I'll call it fellowship. You could also call it communion between God and man, pre-fall. But then when we come to post-fall, that is after Adam and Eve and we fell with them, there's a big problem. And the problem is sin. And what it does is it blocks the fellowship. And so what we have is really actually alienation between the two parties. Fellowship, alienation. But then the good news, literally the gospel, is that after redemption, so I'll just put post redemption, we have a restored fellowship or communion due to an atonement. And so now, I just put it this way, restored fellowship. Now, I, maybe these are juvenile illustrations. They may not help you at all. They, they help my simple mind. That's the change. Before we fell, and now this has been restored, but it's still not perfect, because guess what? We're all still sinners, and we still grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't lose our relationship with God in terms of our salvation and our security. But we do uh, harm to our relationship to God. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Aren't there times in your life when you don't feel close to God? He hasn't changed. You've changed. But the relationship has been harmed. And, and you need to repent and trust Christ's atonement for that. And enjoy a restored fellowship with God. But wow. I really should put up another one, you know, post-consummation or call it something. When Jesus comes back and when we are made absolutely sinless, then there will be a, a complete um, restoration that looks like the pre-fall, the pre-fall restoration. I mean, talk Adam and Eve had open, sweet, comfortable, unbelievably satisfying communion with God. And that's what we're headed for. But it's been largely restored for those of us who are Christians. Right, Grandpa? Yes. <laughs> how, how fun is it to be a grandfather? Absolutely wonderful. You love your, kid, you love your grandkids more than your kids, don't you? You can say it. 
They're not in here right now. He's just a son-in-law. <laughs> Diane and I often say, man, did we really, seriously, did we love our kids this much? And uh, I'm sure we did, but wow. Okay, so there's the picture, and this is what we're going to be focusing on then today. This right here. So... And we're especially going to focus on this word. Pro propitiation. Actually, don't say propitiation, but pro yeah, go ahead and say anything you want. <laughs> I think people sometimes call it propitiation, but I prefer to say propitiation. And this is going to be a key word, and I'm telling you, if there's a theological term that you would have to put in the top ten, if not the top five, for the rest of your life in terms of what's packed into that term, this is one of the sweetest, most precious, most critical theological terms to understand. So we're going to be thinking about that especially today. The atonement is what actually propitiated, but we'll be looking at that in just a minute. Now, I want to set up what I would call a huge problem. And the huge problem is this. How can a loving God restore fellowship or be reconciled to sinful human beings and still remain infinitely holy and infinitely just. How can a loving God restore fellowship and still be holy and infinitely just? Can a loving and just God simply set aside his justice? and allow it to be triumphed by his love. I'm going to read that question again. Can a loving and just God simply set aside his justice and allow it to be trumped by his love? I think you all know the answer to that. But I'm wanting you to appreciate a dilemma. Imagine a discussion between two of God's attributes which are both actually part of his essence. Now this is obviously imaginary, okay? And I sometimes do this when I try to explain the gospel to unconverted people. So this doesn't actually happen in God. There is no conflict in God. There, they don't have to have discussions and debate and work out problems. And you can't take an attribute and just personify it, but I'm, I'm personifying an attribute for the purpose of illustration today because the attributes are the essence of God. But let's just pretend that um, love is a person and justice is a person. And they're having this imaginary dialogue. And love speaks first and says... I so love the world, the world of fallen mankind, that I cannot bear to let them perish. 
I want to simply forgive them and grant them eternal life. That's love speaking. Justice replies and says, but I cannot merely step aside and pretend that I don't exist. I exist also. I am also a part of what it means for God to be God. I too must be satisfied. You see the problem? Again, this is only an analogy. There's no conflict in the mind and in the attributes of God, but this is helping us understand. Love wants to forgive. Justice must be satisfied. Holiness and justice produce in God a sinless wrath. It's hard for us to sometimes think of wrath as being sinless because all the wrath we see and know and experience has some sin in it. Whenever you are filled with wrath, try by the grace of God for that wrath to be as sinless as possible. Anger is without sin, by the way, when it is against sin, when it's purely against sin. But you know, as a parent, you're, you're really troubled with the sinfulness of your child and you become very angry. And it's warranted for you to become angry, but how many of us have become sinfully angry with our children? God's wrath is sinless. And if God didn't have wrath, he wouldn't be perfect. Just think about that for a minute. He wouldn't be God. And his wrath must be satisfied. It must. Well, another person, quote unquote, steps up called wisdom. So you have love and justice dialoguing, and they have a conflict. And wisdom comes along and says, I have a solution. And wisdom's ready to speak. But let me, let me first frame the dilemma in biblical language. So I'm going to put it this way now. How can God be just and still justify sinners and actually declare them righteous? Does that sound a little bit familiar to the Bible? How can God be just and justify sinners and declare them righteous? In other words, how can God be just and a justifier of sinners? When we try to justify our sin, it's always wrong. But God can justify sinners and still be just. But I'm just framing the question biblically. That's the question. And brothers and sisters, this is a huge question. This is a colossal question. This is a gigantic dilemma. At least for, from our perspective. And if you don't understand the dilemma, then you need to keep wrestling with what it means for God to be loving and desirous of rescuing sinners and forgiving them. And at the same time, being a God of justice who cannot let sin off the hook, who must execute 
punishment and wrath against sin. So how can God's love go into action and forgive sinners and at the same time his holy wrath be satisfied? I want to say for the probably the third time, this is a colossal theological dilemma if you think it through. So now let's hear what wisdom has to say. Wisdom says, well, let's send the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Remember, he's not the Son of Man until he becomes human. Let's send the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to earth and let him join himself to humanity so that there can be two natures in one person, a, a, a divine nature and a human nature. After all, this, this person, this Son of God sent to earth is going to become a mediator. And as I said last week, who better mediates than someone who is a part of both parties? The divine nature and the human nature. And by the way, I didn't put this up today, but remember, don't forget this, that um, as mediator, this is a bit of a throwback to last week, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. I won't go into all of that, but he combines those three offices, which were Old Testament offices. A few of the Old Testament people were both, or two, but none of them were three. I think we said last week, David is called a prophet in the book of Acts, but we certainly know he was a king. Melchizedek was a king and a priest, but no human being has ever been all three. So when we think about this right here, this is just... Oh, in another color, this will work. It's this. Oh, this is bad. It's this office, especially, that goes into action here. It's as priest that an atonement which propitiates whatever in the world that means the wrath of God. So you see this stuff is all connected. I mean, it's kind of like, I was thinking about the analogy of the human body. You know, we are, our bodies are an organism, but within the organisms there are organs, and there's not a single organ in your body that is not connected to something else. Your, kidney is an, your kidneys are organs. The brain is an organ. The heart is an organ. Think of the relationship between the heart and lungs. That's where so much disease comes in, isn't it? When... Um, your heart gets weak and it doesn't pump adequately. You uh, fluids gather around your heart and it's called congestive heart failure. If your lungs aren't working properly, your heart can't work properly. They're sympathetic, but they're two different organs inseparable. And so it is with, with these offices of God. So wisdom steps up and, and says, let me just review it again. He says, 
let's send the second person of the Trinity to earth. Let him join himself to humanity so that two natures will be joined in one person. Let him live a perfectly sinless life and then die vicariously. When I come to the end of the class, I'm going to just ask you to think about the, um, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. And all I hint right now is that Active was his life of perfect obedience to God. If he had sinned one time, couldn't be the Savior. Passive obedience was his willingness to be, to have his arms spread out and crucified on a cross and endure the wrath of God. It wouldn't have done any good for him to endure the wrath of God if he committed one sin in his active life. So he was obedient to his heavenly Father perfectly for the entirety of his life so that when he went to do his passive obedience, it would be an acceptable sacrifice to God the Father. So says wisdom, let him live a perfectly sinless life and then die vicariously. Vicariously means in the place of someone else, in the place of sinners. Let him take upon himself the sins of his people and bearing in himself the holy wrath of God, let him make an actual payment for the sins so that Listen to me carefully. This is wisdom speaking. So that justice, so that justice can be satisfied. And at the same time, love can legitimately pardon the sins of all who trust in the Savior. That's wisdom's idea. Of course, Wisdom isn't a separate person. Wisdom is an attribute, just like love and justice. And they are all perfectly combined in the person of our great God. And so in the mind and in the heart of God, this plan was devised. A plan whereby a mediator, not only as a prophet to help us with our ignorance, not only as a king to help us with our rebellion, but as a priest to make an atonement for our sins, and in that atonement, propitiate, satisfy the wrath of God. I was listening to a video, actually watching a video of John Piper. I asked Jonathan if he knew of anything good that I could read or see, and he sent me two links. And I couldn't get it all because we don't have adequate Wi-Fi or something at our house. But I'll tell you, I listened to the front end of this, and it was amazing. And I might even play it next week. I almost called Tim last night to tell him that uh, we might do a little video briefly. It only lasts for about five minutes. It's a part of a, of a full lecture. And Piper was... Um, he said he was doodling in the universe. He said, today I just got on Google Earth and went on into astronomical stuff like Dave is into. Dave really understands this. He does this. He's current with it on a daily, on a daily basis. And Piper was learning about how vast the universe is. And you all know, and we've seen this over and over, but we still can't grasp it. This little tiny planet called Earth is a part of a very small, very small galaxy. We have our own star. It's called the sun. It keeps us warm. That, gal that, that um, solar system, I should say, that's what it is. It's a solar system. Belongs to a huge galaxy called...
called the Milky Way, which has billions, billions of suns in it. And by the way, the Milky Way is a small, small, um, what did I call that? Galaxy. What did you say? Galaxy. Galaxy, thanks. <laughs> and then you start to think that there are billions and billions and billions of galaxies. So how far out does the universe extend? And then Piper says, I start thinking, why would a God who could do something like that be willing to enter into relationship with someone like me on a tiny little planet, which is a part of a small solar system in a relatively small galaxy, and have intimate relationship? He says, as vast and glorious as the universe is, and now I'm coming to the point, he said, the most glorious thing this God has ever done is right here. It's right there. The atonement of Jesus Christ on behalf of the redemption of God's people is the single most glorious thing God has ever done or ever will do. So, brothers and sisters, don't just think of these as theological terms. Atonement, propitiation, expiation, reconciliation, redemption, etc., etc. Those are amazing words about an amazing God who has done the most amazing thing that the human mind is capable of even contemplating. That God so loved the world, there's love, that he sent his only begotten Son, there's justice, so that they could be saved, so that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. It's absolutely astounding. So please, let every theological pursuit you ever make in this year or in the rest of your life, let every truth taught in God's Word that revolves around the doctrine of salvation if not physically put you on your knees, spiritually put you on your knees or on your face because the truth of God's redemptive work is designed and only is only properly embraced when it has, listen to this word, its doxological impact. Doxology, just the Greek word for glorious dox. We sometimes sing a doxology. We should have doxological moments all every day of our lives. The other night, how did this subject come up? Jonathan and I were talking, and oh, I know. He, um, he needs, in his particular line of sales work, a bluebird. And I said, what's, what's a bluebird? He said, that's... That's a bird that just appears. You didn't really look, you weren't looking for it, you couldn't find it, you didn't go out and get it, it just appears. And salespeople know that it's wonderful when someone seeks you out and says, hey, I think I need your product, without you making 500 calls a day hoping that 10 of them will answer and three of them will want it. 
And so he sent me a picture. So I said, we have bluebirds out. We have bluebirds in Kentucky. I've seen bluebirds around our home. And he sent me a picture of a bluebird. And then I said, that's beautiful. You guys who know me well know that my Bible has 20 amazing, beautiful feathers in it. And here's one, but it's not pretty from where you are. It's a blue, it's a blue jay feather. Why would a man who's not a sissy <laughs> like to collect bird feathers? I don't know, but I love them. And I'll tell you what they do for me. They give me doxological moments because I think of them. And so I said, Jonathan, have you ever seen the really exotic, the most exotic birds in the world? I said, just so before I could practically finish my sentence, he sent a bunch of them to me on my phone. I'm sitting there, what? They're popping up, popping up, popping up. Just do that sometime. Go to YouTube and type in 10 most exotic birds in the world and look at one of them. And if you can't see the glory of God, you're just dead in your trespasses and sins. But again, nothing compares to the glory of the work of redemption and Christ dying in our place on the cross. So I'm saying to you, you guys, can I call you guys? I'm saying to you guys, don't study theology without it making you glory, glorify God. Don't talk about truths in a cold, mechanical philosophical way and not have doxological moments. I'm convinced that the more godly, godly we are, the more frequently we pause and say, God, you're so good. You're, you're so glorious. You're so beautiful. You're so awesome. And parents do that with your kids. When you see a beautiful flower, and if you can, it's appropriate to pick it. Pick it and hold it close to your children. Say, look at this thing. Do you know that God made millions of these things and they're all different? They're amazing. Look at the sunset last night. PK and I were looking at the sunset after we left the funeral service for Kim's brother. I don't know if you guys noticed the sunset last night when we left. It's beautiful. Have a doxological moment. But listen, anything you see in nature pales in significance to the glory that comes from the truths of God's word. And I'm telling you, propitiation and atonement at the cross is where it culminates. Okay? So if we quit the class right now, I hope it would have been beneficial right there. We can just pray and quit. But my calling is to help you better understand atonement. So let's move on. You hear what wisdom suggests, and really it was what came from the mind and the heart of God. So this is what Paul, this dilemma, back to the dilemma. The dilemma is how can a holy and a just God forgive sinners and still be holy and just? How can he do that? Well, Paul talks about this in Romans 3, so I'd like you to go to Romans 3 for a minute and see. Uh, he, he, he really pretty much uses the same language that I've been using, or maybe I should more fairly say I've been using the language he uses. First, let me just show you in the more immediate context the dilemma, and then we'll look at the broader context. The dilemma is, is sort of uh, resolved in verse 26, Romans 3, 26. It, we won't look at the antecedent to it right now, 
was to show his, that's God, his righteousness at the present time, that is at this point in time in history, so that he, God, this is reference to God the Father, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He was always just. He cannot but be just. But when you start talking about somehow pardoning sinners and letting them have fellowship with you, and you are perfectly holy and just, you've got to come up with a way to do that that preserves your justness. You can't set it aside. You've got to find a way that will enable you to justify wicked, hell-deserving sinners in a way that still honors your justice. And he did. And you know how he did it. And that's what Paul is talking about in this chapter. So the dilemma is how can a just God justify sinners and still be just? Now go back to verse 21, then let's read it in its broader context. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been shown, revealed, apart from the law, that is, it's not found in the Old Testament. It's, it's prefigured there in the symbolism. But we're talking about the real manifestation of it, the real opening up of it. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, doesn't the Old Testament prophesy and symbolize over and over and over and over and over a coming Redeemer? Remember I said this last week? When you read your Old Testaments, just kind of, you know, if I had a big screen up here and I put Old Testament and I put New Testament right underneath it, I'd put a great big arrow from the Old Testament because it's going to the New Testament. And it's all preparing for the ultimate culmination of redemption. And so it's symbolized. So yes, it was there in the Old Testament, but it wasn't manifested until the coming of Christ. So verse 22 says, the righteousness of God well, I better read it again in context. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, here we go. How can God do this and still be righteous? Still be just? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace. Well, how can grace justify sinners? Here it is. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Key word is redemption. Whom God put forward. Wasn't this the suggestion of wisdom? Why don't you send Jesus, the Son of God, down to earth and let him become also the Son of Man, whom God put forward as a, there's our key word, propitiation by his blood. 
How are we propitiated? What is propitiation, by the way? Again, it's just satisfying the wrath of someone. In this case, it's the wrath of God. In this case, it's the just wrath of God. It's the holy wrath of God. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He had to die. He had to take the wrath of God. He had to be the sinner's substitute. But remember, he had in his whole life had to live a perfect life. So his active obedience had to be impeccable. One sin, it's over. One lustful look at a woman, it's over. One little what we call white lie to mom and dad, it's over. One outburst of uncontrolled anger, it's over. But he lived a sinless life. And God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. And here's where we come in. To be received by faith. Have you received that propitiation as your only hope of forgiveness from a just and holy God? It comes by faith. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ who died to make an atonement and propitiate the wrath of God. I'll read on. This was to show God's righteousness. What was? Jesus being punished, the sinless Son of God being punished, receiving the wrath of God while hanging on the cross. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance that would be throughout the Old Testament period, He had passed over former sins. The meaning of this wasn't that God didn't know people were sinful in the Old Testament and He just turned a blind eye. It means that he found a way to forgive them based upon what was going to happen in the future, i.e. the death of Jesus on the cross. And all the symbolism pointed to that coming Christ. And those who had faith in that coming Christ, even though he had not yet made an atonement, hope you're all with me, he had not yet made an atonement. So in a sense, those sins were being passed over in terms of their punishment actually being met out in a person. So if it can continue that way forever and ever, one would say, where's the righteousness of God? How can God be a righteous God and forgive people without, an, without a real atonement? He can't. But he knew it was coming. And they, by the grace of God, trusted in that coming atonement. So this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This was to show his righteousness. So folks, the love of God is demonstrated on the cross. The infinite love of God is demonstrated on the cross. But also the righteousness of God is being demonstrated on the cross. Why would a loving father crush his son, his sinless son? Because he cannot forgive sinners without doing it in a righteous way. And so there's the need of a sinless substitute to bear the wrath of God because the wrath of God's got to be poured out. And if the wrath of God is not poured out on sin, God is not righteous. 
He can't turn a blind eye to sin. His righteousness must be satisfied. And in his wisdom and his love, he did it through sending his son to make an atonement for our sins. To propitiate the wrath of God toward us. The legitimate wrath of God toward us. Trivia question. How many times in the New Testament is the word propitiate or propitiation used? How many? Two. Who said two? Well, at least two. That's like if I'm if the policeman pulls me over for going 75 and a 55, I tell him I was going 55 because you got to go 55 to get to 75. Yeah, the larger the larger inclusive, so at least two, at least two. Pastor Mark's got it. Four. Now, can you can you tell me right off the top of your head where else? Take give it your best shot. Here's one. Well, we did. We did there's two in First John. We did preach to it. Yep. Right here in Hebrews. Yeah. Do you want to guess on the chapter? Chapter two. two. Close. Close, but you. It's like horseshoes. It doesn't count. Yeah. Well, it is two. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was the one. Listen, I was the one that was close. I was going to say three. It's only one off. No, two seventeen. Thank you. In my mind, it was three. Those are the only. There's, those are the only places that the word propitiate is found. But what a precious word! I'm telling you, if you, if you, if you lose everything else from this class today, please, please, I beg you, go home understanding. Not fully grasping, but understanding the concept of propitiation. It is the satisfying of someone's wrath. In the context of the Bible, it's the satisfying of God's holy, pure, and just wrath against sin and sinners. By the way, he doesn't just feel wrath toward the sin. He's, he, the wrath is upon sinners. Because sin can't work without a sinner. He doesn't suck the sin out of us and punish the sin. He has to punish the sinner. And either that punishment will be meted out on Jesus as our substitute or us in hell. And that's why hell never ends. Because all sin is infinitely vile and wicked against an infinitely holy God. And that makes the, the heinousness of the sin itself infinite. And so it needs an infinite sacrifice. Um, let me just uh, keep an eye. Okay. So that's what propitiation. So let's go back then to John 3.16. There were hints of it when love spoke. Love said, I want to... Um, I can't bear the thought of sin of sinners perishing. I want to forgive them so that they can have eternal life. That's what it really is. Did you listen now? Listen to John three sixteen in a little, maybe in a fresh way. God so loved the world. That's the ultimate cause of salvation. That He gave. His only begotten Son. Now, verse 16 doesn't explain all that He did. It just really basically explains that He gave Him. 
so that no one would perish, but that all believed in him. It, John 3.16 doesn't talk about the actual work. It talks about the person. But there, there you see it. You have love, the ultimate cause of our salvation, followed by the essential cause of our salvation. God didn't have to love us. If he didn't have to if he didn't love us, there would have been no propitiation. But if he loves us so much that he wants to forgive us, he's going to have to propitiate himself. <coughs> and so propitiation becomes essential. Theologians call that a consequent or consequential cause of our salvation. The ultimate cause is the love of God. But that which actually secured it was propitiation. So I don't think, well, could we just look real quickly? Actually, we will do this. Let's go to Hebrews because that's next. Hebrews 2.17. I've identified it, but just notice it. Hebrews 2.17. Who was it that said chapter 2, by the way, when I thought it was 3? Jim did. Mark did. Brothers, I have a prize for both of you. On that table there are donuts. There's a, there are white ones and there are brown ones. I got my prize earlier. You got your prize earlier. Okay, Hebrews 2.17. Thank you. You're welcome. Therefore, he, referring to... Christ, the offspring of Abraham, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. See how the mediate, the office of priest in the mediator in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, very quickly to the last two. 1 John 2.2, 2. this is a precious verse. Well, I'll read verse 1 because this is what makes it so precious of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I, I don't want you to sin at all. But he doesn't say when. That would be too much encouragement for us. But if anyone does sin, and he's already made it clear that if we say we don't have sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us in chapter 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's, you see, the priestly work of Christ is not just to make an atonement, but to mediate between us and God. Do any of you get to God apart from Christ? Why do we end our prayers in Jesus' name? He's the mediator. He's our advocate. He's our attorney at law. And when the prosecutor lays out all the sins against us in the presence of the holy judge, Someone stands up and says, Your Honor, everything 
my opponent has said is true. All of those sins my client has committed. But, as his advocate, I have paid for them all. That's what this verse is about. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. On what grounds does he advocate? Listen, here it is. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what that doesn't mean every single human being that ever existed, because if he actually propitiated, propitiated the wrath of God toward every single human being for every sin they ever committed, then you'd have to be a universalist and there will be nobody in hell. He's talking about the global cosmic purposes of God for salvation. Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people for the whole world is not just the savior of Jews. He's also the savior of Gentiles and all of the nations. And then finally, 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. We do. But that he loved us and sent his son, ultimate cause, love, essential work to be done in order for this to happen. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And according to Paul in Romans 3, why did, um, why did sins have to be propitiated? So that God could be just and the justifier of sinners. So that God could be just in justifying sinners. There has to be a payment. There has to be a propitiation. And in that process, of course, particularly while our Savior was hanging on the cross, he became a curse on our behalf. And I just want you to notice, because our time is almost gone, I want you to notice with me Galatians 3.13. And then I'm going to play something for one minute on my cell phone if I can make this work. Galatians 3.13. Did I, did I say, I did say Galatians, correct? Galatians 3, 13. And I know we're just jumping into this. <clears throat> but it says, Christ redeemed, purchased back. See, there's so many words. There's, there's redemption, which is the purchasing someone out of um, some form of bondage. In this case, it's the curse of the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse. That's substitution right there for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took the curse. The punishment. And you see, it's and that's how the wrath of God on our behalf was propitiated. Listen to the words of R.C. Sproul. I'd rather show this to you, but it's way too small on my phone. But listen to what he says at one of the highest, most sacred moments of a sermon that several of us, I know Pastor Mark and I were there um, on the day that he did that at T4G. Here are his words. It was as if there was a cry from heaven, excuse my language, but I could be no more accurate than to say, 
very unbelievably anointed and powerful and we can help you listen to that whole sermon if you ever want and I think we we actually have it in video form on, a, on an old-fashioned thing they call a DVD so brothers and sisters here's what it means in part what I've all what all that we've considered today for us to have an atonement for our sins we have a Savior who perfectly propitiated the wrath of God on the behalf of all who believe in Him. And maybe some of you hoped that I would deal with the controversial subject of the extent of the atonement. You know, do we believe in a limited atonement or do we believe in a universal atonement? Well, in the spirit of that question, I would quickly answer, as Reformed believers, we believe in limited atonement, but we prefer other words. We prefer particular atonement. We prefer definite atonement. The death of Jesus Christ in its forgiving power is infinitely valuable and is sufficient to pay for the sins of every single human being who has ever lived on planet Earth. And the gospel, well and properly proclaimed, is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord may be saved. And if you feel your need of such a Savior, he's yours. And we preach that. But it's also true that Jesus purchased, literally paid for the sins of his people, what the Bible calls that nasty word for so many people. Imagine being offended with a word that God himself ordained and inspired. It was definitely made for his elect. And the last time I checked, I don't mean to be facetious, election is choosing someone out of an option. We hand someone a bowl of fruit and it has oranges and apples and pears and grapes in it, we say, would you have some fruit? You're going to make an election. And if I said, would you like some fruit? And, and they said, yes. And, and I only had an apple, and I said, choose, and I hold you a bowl with an apple, I said, choose, choose what you would like. And they can look at me and smile. That's no choice. God has set his peculiar love and affection upon a number that no human being can compute. They're called in the Bible the elect, and the word elect or election in its various forms is used 55 times in the New Testament. 
It's not wrong for God to choose some and not to choose all when all deserve to go to hell. So I'm not going there because that's not my that's not my burden. If you want to talk about particular redemption sometime, the extent of the atonement, we'll have another discussion. I'm happy to do that. I'm not embarrassed about that. That's what reformed people believe. But I want you to see the, the universality of it in terms of God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there it is, folks. If that's not doxological, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. So glory in the cross, glory in your Redeemer, glory in the atonement, glory in propitiation. All of your sins, word, thought, and deed, have been paid for. And there is not one gram of wrath, holy wrath, left in the heart of God toward any of you who are trusting in him. There is no wrath. I think I've told you this before, but I heard this story when I was at Bob Jones University. Probably Camilla and Tim may have heard that same story told about a a man who was about to die. He was an old man, and he didn't understand the gospel. He happened to be a Roman Catholic, and the priest had come in. And and an evangelist came and said, do you have peace? He said, I have no peace. He shared the gospel with them and told them how Jesus came and died and that salvation was in a person and not in a sacrament, not in a church. He shared the gospel. He told them, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone and you shall be saved. And he did. And within a few minutes, he muscled up enough strength, mustered up enough strength to sit up in his bed with a pillow behind him, old man. And he yelled out, no condemnation. No condemnation. And one last time. No condemnation. And his head fell and he died. Because he understood that for those who trust in Christ, there is no wrath. It's all been meted out in our Savior. (coughs) Pastor Keith, would you lead us in our closing prayer, please?